Hello, and welcome to the Jeff Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane. I'm a registered nurse and the owner of MJD Legal Nurse Consulting. In the medical community, Just Culture refers to this idea that when errors occur, they should be examined closely and without judgment. It, to be honest, most errors, especially the larger ones, do not happen in a vacuum. So if we truly take a deep look at all the events leading up to an error and the factors at play, we can usually spot the weak link in the processes and hopefully prevent future errors from occurring. That's exactly what we'll be doing here in this podcast. Over the course of my career, I've reviewed hundreds of medical-related cases as a resource for attorneys across the country. I aim to use that experience, as well as my experience as a practicing registered nurse, to analyze medical-related cases, explore what went wrong, and perhaps learn what we can do in the future to save lives. Hello and welcome to the Just Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane Duquette. Today we're going to review a case. Um, the client actually, spoiler alert, they lost, the, they appealed two times and lost and I have some input on maybe why. Um, this is a case of a patient by the name of Rebecca Marie Walt uh, versus the University of Maryland Medical System Corporation. Um, and at all, so there's more, there's the surgeon involved and such. Um, the final appeal was out in November of 2009, so this case is a few years old. Uh, what happened was Mrs. Wald presented to the University of Maryland Medical Center to have an aneurysm treated in her brain. So an aneurysm is an area of the it's a blood vessel issue where there's a weakened um, or damaged part of the um, vasculature and this can you can get aneurysms in different places um, some really dangerous places are in the brain because they um, the weakened lining of the blood vessels can burst causing severe complications and or death and another dangerous place um, is in the neck because there's large blood vessels that support blood flow to the to the brain um, and also a really common one is a abdominal aortic aneurysm so your aorta is the largest blood vessel in the whole entire body and some people can get aneurysms in the abdominal portion of that and it's huge huge it comes directly from the heart and so applies the whole lower part of the body so this blood vessel has a lot of blood going through it and it's it's really big so having that burst can often be lethal. So people do surgeries on to correct these things all the time and that helps people. They don't have the risk of a aneurysm bursting and all of the complications of that. And that is what Mrs. Walt came in to be treated for. What they said was that during the procedure, Mrs. Walt developed some bleeding in the brain and as a complication, it wasn't normal. And she ended up having a stroke and suffered extensive physical and mental impairments and they were trying to sue for reimbursement. The basis of the lawsuit stated that Dr. Greg Zorski, who was the surgeon at the time, and the University of Medical uh, University of Maryland Medical System, which was the hospital, did not provide care and treatment that met the standard of care 
and that the medical providers did not properly obtain Mrs. Walt's informed consent. And that is where the case was brought. Those were the two deviations that the lawyers state cited had happened. And they proceeded to hire a, an expert witness. And the expert witness stated that on the day of question, Mrs. Walt was brought to the operating room by Dr. Zorsky. He was the chief of the interventional radiology at the University of Maryland Medical Center. She was supposed to have surgery to correct an aneurysm using a neuroform micro delivery stent system. During the procedure, Dr. Zorsky nicked an artery, resulting in bleeding into the brain, resulting in a hemorrhagic stroke. So take just a moment and kind of decipher what all of this means. Uh, many of us have heard of a stroke. It is involving the brain and the blood vessels. And we know that people can get different symptoms. So we teach people if you have a sudden severe headache, if you have sudden weakness or a loss of ability to move your limbs or inability to smile, to blink, um, impaired sensation, get to the hospital as soon as possible so that you can be treated because the longer a stroke is left to go without treatment, the worse off you are and the less likely you are to recover any damage that you've incurred from the stroke. And also the longer it goes, the worse the complications can be. So how a stroke happens is you have all kinds of blood vessels inside the brain, and there are two types of strokes. One is a blood clot, which causes obstruction. So the brain uses a lot of oxygen all the time. And if you have a clot in one of your arteries, small one, big one, doesn't matter, it will cause decreased blood flow to that area of the brain, and that cuts off oxygen supply to the brain. The brain can't go very long without oxygen. So you end up with it, whatever part of the brain is where your deficit's going to be. It could be on the right side, and then you would have left side weakness. It could be on the left side. You could get right side weakness. Sometimes you can have a stroke where you can't speak. There was a news anchor that was on the news kind of saying her, her skit, telling the news, and then all of a sudden she started spitting out this word salad, which were all these words just jumbled. Nothing made sense. And that was the result of a stroke. It was just incomprehensible speech. Sometimes you can speak um, and you can't actually understand what people are saying to you. Sometimes you can understand, this is most painful, you can understand what people are saying to you, but you can't express yourself and speak the words that you want to say back to them. Uh, it all just depends on the area of the brain that is affected. And the symptoms are the same for this next type of stroke as well. So the first one, just to review, was the clot, which is obstruction, blocks blood flow to certain area of the brain. And the, that part of the brain kind of gets like a, like a bruise, essentially, from that. Um, it suffers an injury. And the other type of stroke is a hemorrhagic stroke, which results from a burst blood vessel or in this case, a punctured blood vessel, where there's bleeding from the blood vessels in the brain. This does a couple things. The first thing it does is it cuts off blood flow from anywhere that that blood vessel was supposed to travel to after the area that it was burst. And that area would then suffer lack of oxygen and the tissue um, damage. 
and uh, and all of the symptoms. And number two is depending on how bad the bleeding is, you can get increased pressure in your brain because your skull is this really hard structure and it doesn't have any give. In babies, it does because our skull is infused. That's why they have those soft spots. But as you get older, your soft spots close and there's only a certain amount of space inside the skull. So when the brain has bleeding or anything extra in there, this can come from a stroke, come come from a traumatic brain injury. But anytime there's anything that could increase the space inside the brain, increases pressure and that pressure can cause damage to the brain overall. So with a hemorrhagic stroke, you have a couple different things going on. But either way, the symptoms can kind of be the same. The severity of the symptoms depends on how severe the hemorrhages or the clot is and what artery it is. If it's in a major artery versus a smaller, lower artery, that would be more local. A major artery would be cover larger area of the brain. And also, um, it also depends on how long the patient's had a stroke. That's why we say if you have these symptoms, get to the hospital immediately. If it's a, a blood clot stroke, there's medicine they can give to break up the blood clot. And the sooner they give that, they only have a window of time to give that medicine. And so the sooner they are able to give you that medicine, if it's in within the window time frame, then you can um, minimize the, the complications from the stroke and even reverse them sometimes. If it's a hemorrhagic stroke, you know, if it's really bad, they could take you into the operating room and fix it to min minimize the damage. Uh, so treatment quickly is um, essential. With neurologic tissue and brain damage, it takes a long time for that to heal. So, you know, whenever you're thinking about somebody with a stroke and maybe they have, you know, total weakness or whatever the symptoms are, we don't usually say that that is their symptoms for life because some part of it will heal. Think of it as like a bruise. So somebody punches you in the arm. Where the impact was, where the hand hits your arm, you're going to have this like really darker area of the bruise. But then there's some bruising around the outside of that as well. And that area on the outside will also, you know, the thought is that as that heals, it's not as impacted as the main area. So that some of that is going to heal back and you'll get regain, you could regain function in that, but the central area, depending on how bad it is, you might not ever regain function in that in that part. So it's really hard to say, you know, this is the day of the stroke. These are your symptoms. This is what you can expect. We have to kind of um, weed things out, which is essentially what happened in this case, except the doctor was treating the uh, aneurysm with a, with a stent and ended up nicking an artery causing a bleed, so causing a hemorrhagic stroke. So all of those same symptoms would apply. The, um, the increased pressure, the lack of blood flow beyond, and um, I do believe we'll see later it was a major blood vessel. So um, this would probably indicate that Mrs. Walt had a really high level of impairment after this procedure. For the case, there was a medical expert by the name of Dr. James Gerard de Brun, and he stated in his deposition, which is a kind of like a testimony before trial, it's video, it's recorded, um, it can be used in trial, but often they'll start there before going through a full trial. And Dr. DeBrun stated that um, the surgeon, Dr. Zorski, deviated from the standard of care when he performed the coiling procedure, which is planting the stent into the artery. So these are interventional radiology 
doctors, both of them, and interventional radiology is, it's not like cut open the brain, it's using imaging to guide where you're going and what you're doing. So there's usually like a fluoroscopy or some other type of imaging device that is being taken and guiding the, per, the provider as they go. Sometimes they'll use contrast dye and other things. Um, and they can kind of watch like as they're putting the stent in the artery, they can take pictures and watch as it goes. That way they don't have to, you know, cut open the full skull and, and do it. It's a genius, minimally invasive. They do this for a lot of other things. They do this for bone biopsies and different stuff like that. So it's really neat. But what Dr. DeBrun said was he looked at the records, he looked through all of the imaging associated with the procedure, which is important if you're going to get the records. Yes, the surgeon report, but the medical expert to do a really good job, you're going to want to also get the images. And all the images during the procedure showed that Dr. Zaworski deviated from the standard of care when he performed the coiling procedure by using the guide wire to fish for the stuck third coil in the stent and doing so perforated the middle cerebral artery, which is that large artery I told you about, at a site away from the aneurysm in the brain. He explained that the perforation was caused by Dr. Zaworski's manipulation of the guide wire and not by the stent itself because an angiogram, which is the imaging of the blood vessels taken during the procedure showed that the stent and the coils were perfectly deployed and in place and the proceed and the location of the bleed as shown in those same angiogram pictures was too distant from the aneurysm to have been caused by the stent and also Dr. Zaworski's own note at the time of the event reflected that his belief that the perforation occurred away from the aneurysm so there's a lot to unpack there first of all the way a stent works usually is it is kind of weaved into a into the blood vessel in this case and then it's deployed so these coils are sort of the outer arms of it and they are deployed to kind of keep the stent in place because if we're putting a stent in an artery we don't want the stent to move because that can cause a blockage which will in turn cause a stroke so they have these coils everything according to the imaging looked like it was in place but at one point Dr. Zaworski thought one of the coils didn't quite get into the placement that it needed to be in, so he wanted to fix that. So he used something called a guide wire to do that. Um, guide wire is not something that's unusual to this type of procedure. We use them for a lot of different things, uh, for you know interventional radiology a lot. We use them for urology, so procedures of the urinary tract. Maybe I've seen them used really commonly for putting in urinary catheters that maybe are really hard to put in. You would go through with a scope and place the guide wire wherever it's needed. It's the blood vessel, urethra, whatever. You can see the guide wire because it's usually uh, made of material that can be shown on imaging. So you can see where it is, see where it's going. And then you would put the stent or catheter, or, you know, whatever you're putting over it. And that kind of helps, uh, one, so that things don't coil up. And two, it guides them into the right position because it's going to follow wherever that guide wire goes. The guide wires aren't usually really rigid, um, but they're not completely like rubber and flexible and soft and not pointy, if that makes sense. Like you could put it on your finger and push down and it wouldn't cut your finger. 
But if you have a weak blood vessel or another small blood vessel that has a really thin layer, it is strong enough where you could actually poke a hole in the blood vessel, which is what happened. He was fishing around and ended up getting out of place where he was supposed to be, and he hit this artery, according to what Dr. Gibran testified to and said that that was what happened in the records. And Dr. Zorsky actually put in his note that the bleed did not happen at the site with the stent. It happened at a separate site. He didn't probably didn't say it was because of the stent. He just said that it was a separate area, meaning it didn't come from the stent, which could possibly happen in this type of procedure. You're putting a foreign body into a weakened blood vessel that could cause a bleed. And that would be more along the lines of a expected outcome of this procedure, maybe an unexpected outcome, but an expected complication of this procedure probably would be that there could be bleeding and and blood vessel rupture. So this case ended up going to trial based off of all of that information and the fact that they claimed that Mrs. Walt wasn't given proper informed consent. I'll get into the nitty gritty details of that later. But for right now, um, I just wanted to go over Dr. Gerard Debrun, the medical expert's background, because this is helpful to understand the outcome and understand kind of the key points um, that I wanted to take away from this case. So there isn't a lot online about this guy. He was trained in France and practiced in interventional radiology for 45 years before he retired in July of 2001. According to the appeal, he held many positions in the field of interventional neuroradiology. So he specialized in neurologic procedures in the interventional radiology world. His positions that he held were chief of neuroradiology at the University of Paris, director of neuroradiology at the University of London in Canada. He was chairman of the Department of Radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. He was a visiting professor at Harvard Medical School, and he was the director of interventional radiology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. He has lectured and written hundreds of articles in the field of neuroradiology and completed 30 coiling procedures to treat aneurysms in the arteries of the neck. But because of his retirement in 2001, he never got to do any procedures with this specific stent, the neuroform stent that um, was used in this case. He just never got a chance to use it because he retired before it came out. So one of the key things that came up in trial, which is often the first thing, is the medical expert. So it's very important that the medical expert is qualified to speak about the key issues in the case. You wouldn't want an expert in you wouldn't want an OBGYN doctor who delivers babies to talk about a radiology, a neural radiology procedure. That just doesn't make sense. Dr. Gibran was a really decorated surgeon and expert in interventional radiology, but he had retired and was only assisting colleagues, writing articles. He wasn't clinically practicing at the time that this case was being tried. And so the defense said that he wasn't qualified. And in Maryland, you have to meet qualifications. So your expert testimony can't exceed the work you do on expert testimony can't exceed 20 percent of the total hours that you do for work in the field. So sometimes if you're a practicing doctor, 
it would be your um it would be your clinical practice your surgeries your patient care and then less than 20 percent of your time would be doing expert work on the side in this case he was doing kind of more behind the scenes lecturing writing articles attending conferences educational more educational behind the scenes stuff and doing some test ext uh, expert witness work on the side but because they decided that his expert witness work when they figured it out in trial it was uh, more than 20 percent of his extracurricular activities in his field or his learning and teaching that they disqualified him as an expert so they didn't even get to hear the testimony that he was giving about the um the stent at all and they never got to even hear his testimony about the issue of informed consent because he was discarded as an expert witness so the other uh, the defense filed a summary judgment which is essentially you know drop the case and the court agreed it was a it was appealed two times the second time is the one um, that i'm going to review here but i just want to take a moment to say it's important to choose an expert witness really the best is like to match the doctor that you're working with so this man dr debron hadn't done this specific type of procedure so it was really easy for the defense to say you know one he only works in expert witness work now he works more than the 20 percent allotted that's a huge factor here but also they were saying that he had never done the surgery with this particular type of stent so if you could get somebody that's done a procedure then they're a true expert and they really can say you know this is what we should be doing this is what a reasonable person would be doing and they can speak directly to the standard of care without you know any ambiguity it's also important to consider um, how much time the expert witness spends on testimony if that's all they do then they sort of look like you know more of like a hired gun right that's important because the job of an expert witness no matter what right no matter if you're a nurse a doctor a therapist a uh, crash expert your job as the expert witness is to review the records review what happened and say without judgment either it doesn't matter if you're hired by the plaintiff or the defense doesn't matter what side you're working on your job is to say whether a standard of care was breached and this is a standard of care based on what a reasonable person would do in that instance and you say that without judgment and i encourage people um, to look you know what if what other things could have played into this what if i'm wrong what would also have to be true is essentially the next question you ask right because we're scientists right so we have a hypothesis which is this is what happened in this case and then essentially what you do in science is you disprove your hypothesis you go through all of the channels to say why isn't it true and then if it keeps coming back to that is what happened the standard of care was breached just like in, in this case you say the patient had a bleed and it caused them all of these symptoms that's it that's not enough you have to say why did this happen so what did dr Dubron do he looked through the records and he found the note that from dr Zawarski that said that the bleed wasn't near the stent it wasn't in the same blood vessel so then that led to questions so then how did a different blood vessel get injured because i'm expecting it to be the same blood vessel to get injured and what happens is 
is then you look, you say, okay, well, how can I figure out how that happened? So then you take, let me look at the imaging and figure out, because you can see piece by piece as the procedure goes, how this surgery unfolded and how the other artery got nicked and the bleed happened. And that's exactly what Dr. Dubron did. So he looked at the imaging and said, oh, well, here's a guide wire. And that guide wire came out of the vessel and nicked this other vessel and it caused the bleed. That shouldn't have happened. And based his opinion on that. You don't base your opinion on, you know, obviously the plaintiff wants to say, yes, something happened and I want my client to win. The defense says, no, this is standard of care. This was a this was an expected complication. It's unfortunate. We're really sorry that this happened, but it happened. Now, your job as the expert is to disregard what their outcomes are and focus on the facts. And that is it. You're just looking at the facts. What happened? Why do I think this happened? And educate the attorney and in deposition you educate the other attorney you are there for your opinion and your education only you're not there to help anybody win you're just there to say what happened and then when you if the case goes to trial of course then your focus turns to you're there to educate the jury on what happened and why you think it is and all of the things about strokes and what should have happened and what didn't happen but still, you're not there to help anybody win any case. You're just there to educate on the facts. That's really important. And that's really what this case came down to, because there was a period of time. I've heard stories where you would have, you know, a doctor say hired by the plaintiff and they would maybe go say things that are unkosher and so that their focus was to have their clients win. And if your focus is to is on your client winning and you're not being truthful and you're not asking the other questions of, you know, why did this happen? Why did, you know, why did this happen? Like if you were in this case, if you were on the defense side, if you wanted, if you're focusing on the defense winning, you could say, well, aneurysm, bleed, it's an aneurysm, it's a stent, it's a foreign body. You could easily get a bleed from this without asking any more questions. And you came up as an expert and that was your testimony, you wouldn't be doing anybody justice, including the patient who was harmed, because there were other questions to ask. And if this happened to one person, it could happen to another person. So I am I feel really strongly that things like this need to be addressed. The whys need to be asked because now look in this case. I'll bet you it's or it should be in part of the policy that you would never use a guide wire to fish for a coil. They've got to find another way. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I don't know the other way, but I'll bet you some really smart neurosurgeons have some ideas and they could come up with something a lot safer than what happened here. And that's the reason that we do this work. That's the reason that lawsuits exist. Otherwise, what would happen? This woman would be hurt. Nobody would ask any questions, right? With the issue of the informed consent. So this stent wasn't approved for use in this specific type of aneurysm that Mrs. Walt had. Ms., uh, Dr. Zworski was using it as an off-label use, which does happen. Sometimes they'll say, you know, this is applied in aneurysms of the neck. Um, and the blood vessels that are in the neck that supply the blood. But this is a similar artery. And I want to use the stent to fix your artery because I have no other options. And I think this can be successful. Here are the risks. And here are the added risks risks to that. 
that per that can happen. But the thing is, is the doctor or surgeon needs to tell the patient that they're using an off-label use. Did that happen verbally? I have no idea. But according to the court documents, it wasn't done in writing. So in the healthcare profession, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. So because it wasn't part of the informed consent, they were saying that Mrs. Wald had no idea of the increased risk that this procedure had beyond the normal risks because this specific stent wasn't used for that specific type of procedure. He was adopting it as an off-label use, which is a use that it's not really intended for, but could maybe also be used for. Now, in the issue of informed consent and what needs to be in informed consents, according to the appeal and what they used for information was that inside the informed consent, it should be the nature of the ailment. So information about the aneurysm, the nature of the risks of the treatment. So what are the risks of having an aneurysm repaired? Like we talked about some of the major ones are bleeding and damage to the blood vessels, stroke because of that. Uh, the probability of success. So how likely is this to be successful? Some surgeons, especially in cancer, they do a really good job of pulling, you know, if you do this treatment, you have this percentage of success and this percentage of success. But they could say um, it could be a little bit more broad than that. Um, uh, the frequency of occurrence and risks. So you have to say, you know, this is a rare risk that this happens or this is kind of a common risk that happens and any alternatives to treatment. So you should be addressing, you know, if you're going to do an off-label use, you could say, well, there's these other things that we could be doing, but I don't feel that they're necessary because X, Y, Z, and let your patient make the informed decision. It's your job as the doctor or even the nurse. Sometimes nurses will do the education for providers. So you make sure you're watching out for that, but uh, before procedures and even after. So find out who's giving the patient education and find out, did they give them that type of education? and what was in the informed consent that was signed. So in the final appeal, they continued on to say that Dr. Dubrun was disqualified as an expert witness. They went through his, um, in detail, so all of his professional activities, those, they did say that those could count as working in his field and improving his knowledge. And, but, they still had to make sure they had to define that because in the world of the law, you're often dealing with the words themselves and what they mean sometimes. And that's what happened in this case. They had to look at professional activities. OK, he the doctor saying his professional activities are writing journal articles, reviewing other people's journal articles, kind of like as a peer review to make sure that they're legitimate. So in, in the world of science, you can't just write an article and say, this is awesome. I did the science. I did this experiment. This is my results. In order for it to be a true article, it has to be peer reviewed, which means another specialist like Dr. DeBrun would be perfect for this because of all of his experience. He would look at it and judge the science to say, you know, this is good science. This was a good experiment. And these are, you know, valid results based off of that. And there's no issues. If the experiment, maybe they didn't have enough people in the experiment or, maybe um, they didn't quite get enough data to come up with the conclusions that they're saying they'll the peer review process will be like no go back to the drawing board get me these answers before we can sign this off so peer review is kind of like a double check on the scientific data and he was attending medical conferences which is a great way to learn new things 
uh, they go through maybe a new stent, like this stent in this case would come up and you would go and the vendor who made the stent would provide education to surgeons all about it, how to use it, what, what it's used for, what it's made of, what complications, what are, what are we seeing? Because the companies do studies and so they're gonna go over all their data and sort of try to educate the doctors on this new technology, new procedures, new new education that's coming out. And also um, Dr. DeBron was saying that he was consulting with other colleagues and watching their procedures uh, um, for their patients. So those were the professional activities that he was doing. And they did say that those activities were professional activities as it, you know, as we determine them to be as for him to further his knowledge as an expert in this field. The next issue was for them to discern how much time is he spending on professional activities and how much time is he spending on expert witness work, um, including the preparation and testimony and all of that stuff. And they determined that he was spending 20.66% of his time doing expert witness report and in the state of Maryland, in order to qualify as an expert, you have to be, you have to be working um, less than 20% as an expert witness. So they said, they, they continued with the, the ruling that he didn't qualify to be an expert on the case. So unfortunately they never got to hear his opinion on how the aneurysm was not unexpected issue in the case. It was actually a complication, um, unexpected complication caused by the guide wire fishing, which was in the standard of care. They never got to hear any of that and they never got to hear any of the information that Dr. Zorski failed to tell Mrs. Walt in writing um, and possibly verbally. We just, I just have no idea what was said behind those uh, closed doors, but he never, they claimed that he never told her that this was an off-label use and not something that really has ever been done and had increased risk, which, you know, maybe would have caused her to get another opinion or ask, you know, maybe not go through with the procedure. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe she would have gone through the procedure anyway, and it, that just wouldn't have been a part on this case. I have no idea, but she still had the right to know. I did find an obituary online Mrs. Waltz survived this incident. She had a lot of, um, it said physical and mental impairments uh, with a stroke. It could be any number of things, right? Because it depends on where. They didn't say any of her specific ailments, but you can have, you know, difficulty, cognitive ability, so thinking, doing kind of high level thinking, speaking, eating, and physical impairments like not being able to move half your body, ball your body, could even be a vegetable who, um, you know, where you're completely paralyzed and can't move any of your body or you're on a ventilator. Um, it can, really can range so much and it, it depends on so many factors that we've talked about. So I don't know what her impairments were, but they did say they were significant. She survived, but in 2015, a few years after this ruling, she did pass away. The obituary didn't say what of, uh, but that was, um, that's the case of Mrs. Wald versus University of Maryland. University of Maryland won this one, and it was on the basis of the expert witness not being qualified. Had they had a different expert witness, would this be a different outcome? Possibly. Um, some of the key takeaways from this case that I wanted to talk about was, first of all, 
expert witnesses are so important. I feel like I say this all the time, but they are so important. An attorney in most states can't even file a claim without having an expert witness review the case first because attorneys, you can get attorneys that do medical malpractice and medical claims for years and they know quite a bit because you can just, you know, they're being educated all the time by experts. So they're just like learning things by osmosis. But at the same time, they would not, especially, this is an off-label use, they wouldn't have known all of these things. So, and newer attorneys, they don't have that inform that knowledge, that experienced and well-seasoned medical malpractice attorneys have. So to protect the all parties, they we require that all cases have an expert opinion before it's filed. And that's to protect the um, you know, the nurse or doctor hospital, right? But also you want to protect the client because this stuff is long. This is emotionally draining. And if they don't have a case and you've put them through hell of it all what are you doing are you helping them just so that maybe you could like maybe this could go your way no you're not the kindest thing to do that's why i'm such a stickler with you're there for the facts and the facts alone if the facts don't support what the attorney wants them to support you need to tell them that and you need to tell them why because then the attorney can go back and tell the client you don't have a case and here's why i had this expert look at it and these are the things that didn't happen so i'm really sorry that this happened to you but the, it was just a normal issue. So if this was like a, the stent caused the aneurysm to burst and cause bleeding, that would have been more of an expected outcome. And the attorney could have sat the client down and said, you know, that's just an expected outcome. Unfortunately, it was in the consent. You knew ahead of time that could have happened. Um, and so that's why it's so important. It's more, it's not, like I said, it's not about winning the case. It's about doing what is best and advocating for the facts. If this happened to this woman and we don't question it and we don't do anything about it and we just let it slide, it's it's going to happen to someone else and that's going to happen to someone else and then someone else and then someone else. It's just a way to make sure that healthcare stays safe and has some way to be accountable if it's not safe, right? It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's just there's checks and balances and everything in life. And this is just another way for healthcare to have that check and balance. Um, we kind of already talked about expert witnesses in the state you're in. It's important to know how much time you can spend on an expert witness. The best expert witness is someone who has lots of experience, but doesn't really do expert witness work, has experience in what you're looking for, like has done the type of procedure, does that type of work, is really knowledgeable in it, um, and can't be looked at as somebody who's just hired to tell the plaintiff what they want to hear. So it's it's just very important that you have an expert and that the expert is chosen well. And then if you're working as an expert, make sure that you are doing your due diligence. You're asking the big questions. You're asking why, even beyond what you see happen. So even in like a fall case of a patient falls, you got to look beyond that. You got to go, okay, so why did this fall? You know, I mean, sometimes it's that the healthcare provider did everything that they should have, but the patient just refused to get out of bed. I've had that happen. Um, you know, you told the patient, I don't feel like you're safe getting up. I'm going to leave you in the bathroom. I need you to hit this button. I won't watch you go pee because you're in your forties and you don't really need my assistance to go to the bathroom, but I want to help you back to bed. So you need to pull this cord and I will leave you in here to do your business in private. And then if the patient doesn't pull the cord and gets up, 
What are you going to do? And they fall. You told them everything you could tell them aside from doing all of the stuff for them that they didn't want to because you're you're then, you know, imposing yourself on their privacy because they're going to the bathroom and stuff. So as long as you're doing everything that you're supposed to do and your patient, you know, does whatever they want to do and doesn't follow your advice, that's something different. So those are the things that you need to be looking for when you're looking at all of these cases. Those are all just examples of the questions to ask. The other thing is about informed consent. Um, should the doctor have told the patient in writing that he was performing an off-label use of the scent? Yes. Like I said, stuff like that happens all the time. How Medical breakthroughs happen, right? If you can do the same procedure in a different area of the body, can you do it in that area? Um, I wouldn't know if that's something that could happen or if he should have performed that procedure. It was an off-label use. The stent wasn't studied to be used for that purpose. And the most important thing here is he didn't tell the patient he was using a stent that in an area of the body that it wasn't supposed to be done. So he definitely should have done that and he didn't. So unfortunately, you know, this case would have had a different outcome if he had, if the uh, plaintiff attorney had hired more qualified expert. I mean, I don't want to use qualified. That's why I just paused there because Dr. DeBrun was pretty qualified, but he hadn't done these procedures before. He was retired for, you know, before they came out and he spent more of his time. I mean, it was very close, 20.66. The plaintiff attorney was probably like, yeah, by my estimations, probably about, you know, just under 20%. But you know, in the appeals, they had to really dig into it because they were asked to look at that instance um, and they really, really dug right into it. Um, and it came up with 20.66. So he was just barely over. But, you know, it, it might have had a different outcome. Um, you know, strokes are just devastating. They're devastating. They're devastating for the patients. Um, and oft but oftentimes, they're more devastating for the family who have to now watch their loved ones suffer. And also it's, it's an economic disaster, right? Because the person might not be able to work the, and so you lost that income. Now you have a patient who may or may not need uh, caregiving. And so you might have two people in the home out of work and taking care of the patient with a stroke, or you might have to hire outside help, like um, caregiver assistance to help take care of stroke patients. And, you know, it's a lot. There's a lot of equipment that goes into it. You need to modify the home because if they're in a wheelchair, you got to have a ramp. They can't get up the stairs, uh, depending on how they move. If they move, can they get in the shower? You might have to modify things, right? Can they climb over the tub to get in the shower? Do you have a walk-in shower? Do you have a shower big enough to put a wheelchair in? Do you need grab bars? Do you need a shower chair? Uh, do you need a hospital bed because they're bed bound? There's just a ton of things that go into thinking about all of this. And that's kind of why these claims are so important because Mrs. Waltz and her family aren't, you know, weren't out looking for millions of dollars on a settlement so they could go gamble or whatever they want to do. They're looking for the money that they need to survive, number one. And number two, they're looking for the money to make all of these necessary arrangements, the modifications to the home and the caregiving, and just really make sure that her life 
going forward uh, is as successful as it can be given all of the circumstances. So there's a lot that goes into care and aftercare of a stroke. And, you know, that's, that's just another reason why these claims are so important. Well, that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for um, sitting with me while I reviewed this case. I hope you found some value in it. And if you did, make sure you share this with your friends. And please do follow the show um, and kind of rate and review it. I love to hear. I do read the reviews and I do appreciate every single one of you that have sent a review. I really love the feedback and I really love to see which types of cases everybody likes to hear because I can do um, I can do more episodes like that. So definitely send me in your feedback. And as always, I'm always looking for uh, new tales from the trenches. So I will leave my email in the show notes. Make sure you send them to me. They're completely anonymous. I'm not going to say your name. I'm not going to say the hospital's name. I'm not going to say, you know, obviously any patient information. But uh, make sure make sure you send it in. Your story matters because you matter. Until next time, I will see you guys later.